Please open your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 17. Judges 17, beginning at verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. And when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes for your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest. And was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. Let's go before God. Our Father, your word is living and active, and it's sharper than any two edged sword on this earth, and it will likely pierce our hearts today. And I pray that we would be open to that, Father. I pray that we would open our hearts and our minds, that we would bend our wills toward your will and that we would let you speak to us by your word and by your spirit. Because, Father, when you sting us, you only do that to heal us. When you reveal our ways to us, you only do that to transform our ways for the glory of your name and the joy of our souls and the good of other people. And so I pray, Father, that we would be willing listeners today. Help us, Lord, not just to come to a church service, but to come before the presence of Almighty God and listen to what you might have to say to us. And I pray that this day, Father, 
when this service is over, that we would walk out of here transformed people. Maybe some of us will transform just by one degree. Maybe some of us will take a huge leap this morning forward in Christ. But whatever it is, I pray that that this time would not be wasted. I pray that you would powerfully apply your word to our lives. And Lord, I for one surrender myself to you. And I ask you to continue to do the work in my life that you've been doing all week long. And I thank you, Father, for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. The final five chapters of the book of Judges tells us two stories that illustrate just how far Israel had fallen away from the good desires for their lives. And they illustrate for us two distinct ways in which Israel had fallen. Today we're going to look at the first of those stories in chapters 17 and 18, and then, Lord willing, over the next two weeks we'll look at the second story in chapters 19, 20, and 21. The judges themselves have now passed off the scene. They're no more mentioned in the book of Judges, but these stories take place sometime during their reign. We're not sure exactly when, but it was probably toward the end of the reign of the judges of Israel. One way to envision this part of the book is that earlier in his book, the author told us that the people of Israel were lost in idolatry, and now the author wants to show us that the people of Israel were lost in idolatry. He wants to tell us a couple of stories that will grab our hearts and help us to see and taste and touch and feel what it looks like to live inside of a culture that has forsaken the Lord in the name of the Lord. And I think that Along the way, we're going to discover that America, though while different in the details, is not all that different from the ancient and sometimes strange to us world that we're about to enter. And so with these things in mind, let's turn our hearts now to the story of Micah, the Levite, and the Danites, or the tribe of Dan. In the days of the judges, there lived in the hill country of Ephraim near Jerusalem a a wealthy family, a very wealthy family. They had stored up an enormous amount of silver along with other precious metals and surely valuable possessions. But one day, the mother of that family discovered that some 1,100 shekels or pieces of her silver were missing. Now that doesn't mean a lot to us, but to put it in our terms, that equals about one to three million dollars worth of silver. So we are talking about an enormous treasure that came up missing. And so we can understand why this mother was livid and why she loudly and passionately and, 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 and poisonously, viciously uttered a curse on whoever would be found with this silver and even uttered that same curse into the ear of his son, her son. At some point, her precious son Micah could take the, the pressure no longer. He had gained access to the family treasure in one way or another, and he had removed enough wealth to make himself a powerful man and set himself up for life. And if it wasn't for that blasted curse, he probably wouldn't have got, would have gotten away with it. But eventually, the fear of reprisal for his actions overwhelmed his desire for possessions and power, and so he broke down and confessed to his precious mother and said, Mom, you know that silver that was taken from you? The silver about which you uttered a curse and repeated it probably often inside of my ears. Well, Mom, I want you to know that I have the silver. And the reason that I have the silver is because I was the one that took the silver. And so I confess my sin to you and you can do with me what you will. 
His mother could have taken one of any courses of action at this time, but she decided to respond, to respond in grace and forgiveness. And she said with compassion and joy in her voice, Oh, blessed be my son by the Lord God himself. After this, Micah brought the silver in and laid it down at her feet. He brought it all back and restored every single piece to her. And as she looked upon that precious metal and then lifted her eyes to behold her son, her heart was moved by grace. And she said, oh son, I dedicate this silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. And if she was to have stopped right there, beloved, We could rejoice with her. We could take joy in the fact that this woman had been moved by the grace of God and rather than returning evil for evil, she blessed her son for evil. Rather than simply punishing him for his sin, she acted in grace just like her God and lavished grace upon her son when he deserved everything opposite of grace. But sadly, she did not stop there. She said, son, I dedicate this silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore, I will in essence restore this silver back to you. His mother was saying, son, it was never about the money. I have plenty of money. I have plenty of possessions. I have all that I need. I have a massive estate. I don't need the money. It was not about the money. It was about honesty. It was about integrity. And now that you've done the right thing, I want to honor God by creating images by which we can worship God. But she didn't understand that what she was about to do, what she was about to call for in her family and eventually in the life of Israel was what I would call sanctified blasphemy. It's false worship that's whitewashed with the language of true worship. It's idol worship in the name of the Lord. So Micah's mother took 200 shekels of silver, and again, that just doesn't mean anything to us, but we're talking about a half million dollars. She took a half million dollars and commissioned a silversmith to fashion a carved image and a metal image, two things. We don't know exactly what these were or what the difference between them was, but actually it doesn't really matter. What matters is that this rich and powerful woman, even if she had compassion in her heart, had just commissioned the fashioning of objects that the Lord himself had forbid very clearly and very graciously, by the way. It's a gracious thing for God to tell us, don't do the wrong thing. That's a gracious thing. Deuteronomy 27.15 Cursed be the man or the woman who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. And all the people of Israel shall answer and say, Amen, so be it. The Lord is right. We will listen. We will obey. At one time, the people of Israel did say amen to this gracious command, but now in the days of the judges, they had all but forsaken the Lord, and they had no problems or hesitations crafting what God had abhorred and what he had forbidden This was sanctified idolatry, and it was a vast plague on the people of Israel in those days. Now when the idols had been fashioned and they were ready for display, Micah reasoned that such prestigious objects as these, about a quarter of a million dollars apiece, they deserved a precious dwelling place. And so somewhere in his spacious home, he built a, a sort of personal chapel, 
He built a shrine where he placed these idols, and then in an effort to exalt their usefulness and their sacredness, he commissioned the fashioning of even more household gods, even more idols. And along with these, he commissioned the fashioning of an ephod, which was a vestment to be worn by priests when they went before the Lord to seek his will. For whatever reason, he was unable to find a priest to serve in this shrine of his And so he took it upon himself to ordain his own son to serve as the priest of his own chapel in the name of the Lord. Who was this man to ordain anyone? And who was his son to serve as a priest of the Most High God when God had already said who should serve as priests and who should not? He was committing sanctified blasphemy, beloved. God had forbid this, but Micah did this. Though the Bible doesn't explicitly say that this is so, I I imagine, as I picture his shrine, that somehow or other Micah ensured that the sacred name of Israel's God was prominently displayed over all of this as if to say, this is a glory to God and of use for his people. And the primary reason that I think that Micah used the name of the Lord to justify his idolatry is because his mother specifically dedicated her silver to Yahweh, and not just to God in some generic sense. If you look there in verses two and three, you will likely notice in your Bibles that the word Lord is typed in in all caps or in small caps. That is a signal that Bible translators give to English speakers that behind the word Lord in this instance is the name of God, Yahweh, and not just a generic word for Lord or God like Adonai or Elohim or something like that. This is the sacred name of God. Back in the days when God called Moses to lead the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, Moses was afraid and he said to the Lord, Oh Lord, the people aren't going to believe that you sent me. They will never believe. So please tell me your name. I, I know that you are God. You're obviously revealing yourself to me right now as God, but I don't know who you are. So Lord, what is your name? And God, the gracious maker of heaven and earth, revealed himself that day to Moses as Yahweh a name that means I am. I am life. I don't give life. I am life. I am light. I am truth. I am hope. I am joy. I am love. I am. Moses, tell you that I am sent you. Tell them that Yahweh sent you. This became the name by which Israel knew the Lord. And beloved, it was the specific name to which Micah's mother dedicated the silver it was the specific name to which, on which Micah's mother called. And so there's little doubt in my mind that it was the name which Micah pasted over his shrine, his den of idolatry, to somehow justify or sanctify it. Whether he was conscious of his compromise or whether he was so hardened by his sin that he was absolutely blind to what he was doing, Micah blasphemed the name of the Lord in the name of the Lord. Micah spurned the glory of God in an attempt to give glory to God. And oh, how wise we would be if we would listen to the warning that's in this text. Don't do that. Don't do that. To help us understand how this kind of thing could transpire among the people of Israel in these days, the author says in verse 6, 
that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The author wants to tell us loud and clear, listen people, I'm telling you a story and you might think that Micah actually is justified in this, but I want you to know that I, the sacred inspired author of God, I want you to know that my perspective is he's out of the will of God. There was no leader in Israel and he was doing what was right in his own eyes. In those days, God was dwelling in the midst of his people, but they didn't care to listen to his word and follow in his ways. In those days, they did not care to know the Lord and follow him and display their love by obeying him. In those days, there was no dominant leader in Israel who was purely and passionately and persistently pointing Israel toward their maker and king. There was no one who was soaking in the word of God for the love of God and then lovingly applying that word to the lives of the people. There was no one who was shouting from the mountaintops that the people of God were supposed to give all of themselves to God and in this way receive much joy and much blessing from God. There was no one in the households instructing fathers and mothers that they were supposed to teach their children the will and ways of the Lord that they might have his joy and know his blessings too. Beloved, slowly but surely, Israel walked away from the word of the Lord, and because of this, they walked away from the will of the Lord. They got into this horrible mess in a very simple fashion, one small compromise at a time. That's how it happens. Whenever you hear of a brother or sister in the Lord who quote-unquote fell away, you can know something for sure. That did not happen overnight. That was a slow process of compromise. And one compromise leads to another, and next thing you know, it's utter disaster. So Israel forgot the word of the Lord, and eventually they forsook the will of the Lord. That's how it happens every time. Meanwhile, there lived in the sacred city of Bethlehem a young man from the tribe of Levi, This was the tribe of priests that God had called and ordained and confirmed for himself to serve as priests. For whatever reason, this young man could not find his place in that place, and so he set out from there in the hope that he might discover some ministry or find some life to live or find some people to serve for the Lord. If Israel and its leaders had been faithful to the Lord, then they would have established the God-ordained worship of the Lord, and this man would have known exactly what to do with his life because God told the Levites exactly what they should do with their lives. He should not have been confused about his destiny. But Israel was lost, and therefore this young man was lost. No one was leading the way, and therefore this man lost his way. The shepherds of Israel had become waterless clouds, and so this young man was dying of thirst and wandering in the desert, so to speak. So he set out, wandering from one place to another, wondering where he would end up and what God would do with his life. And wouldn't you know it, but he came across this lovely and lavish estate of one Micah of Ephraim, who just happened to be in the market for a priest. And so the two of them began to talk, and Micah persuaded the priest to stay with him and to be as a father to him in the faith and as a son to him in the flesh. Micah promised him that he would provide him with a house. He would provide him with all the clothes that he needed. He would provide him with all the food that he needed. He would provide him with spending money. He would give him everything that he needed in this life. And all the young man had to do in return was to serve Micah and his family and his broader household as their priest. He needed to superintend this shrine that Micah had created. The Bible tells us that this young man was content to dwell with Micah under these terms, and I take that to mean that he saw these events as a sign of God 
in his life. He saw these things as a confirmation of God's blessing in his life. He had just set out to only God knew where. And now he thought that he had discovered the place that God had already created for him. He saw in these circumstances confirmation of the will of God and his heart was happy. But you know that the truth of the matter was he was lost and wandering away from the will of God and he was wandering away from the actual calling that was upon his life. A calling that was made very clear in the word of God. But he had walked away from that and now he's walking in what he thinks is the will of God and he just receives what he thinks is confirmation of that will. Oh, how powerful is the propensity toward self-deception. When we are lost, beloved, we are very gifted at finding so-called confirmations from God that we're actually on the right path. And as we'll see in a few minutes, this young man is a lot more complicit in his current struggles than it might seem at this point. As for Micah, he actually had the gall to ordain this man that God himself had already ordained as a Levite. He was rich and powerful, and therefore he thought he had control over the means and manner of the worship of God in his life. And he took an authority upon himself that God had given to certain people and forbid from everybody else. But even though he was blaspheming the Lord in the name of the Lord, Micah's heart was rejoicing in what he thought to be an amazing confirmation of the blessing of God in his life. Look at verse 13. You'll see what I'm saying. Micah says this. I'm assuming he says it out loud so that people can hear it. Probably so that his mother can hear it. Now after all this, I know. Not I think, not I hope. But now I know that the Lord, that Yahweh, that the great I am will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. It's like he's saying, are you kidding me? God sent me a bona fide man of God. I had sinned so greatly and my mother was so gracious to me and then she funded this stunning shrine and dedicated it to the Lord and in honor of the Lord, I actually had to ordain one of my own sons because I couldn't find a priest but now God is honoring my heart. He's honoring my ways. He's honoring my actions by sending me an actual Levite, a real priest, one of the guys that's talked about in the Bible. Yes, God is blessing my life. He's confirming his blessing and surely his blessing will land upon me all the days of my life. God thinks this is a tragedy. Micah's celebrating because he thinks he's in the will of God. One compromise always leads to another compromise. It happens every time. You and I think that this won't happen to me. It's kind of a deceiving thought that we have in our minds all the time. Oh, I won't go down that path. Others have, but not me. Don't fool yourself. One compromise will always lead to another compromise. And self-deception always breeds further and deeper self-deception. But in our hearts, we know that we have uh, a joy in this life only by walking in the will and ways of God. And we know somehow deep inside that when we walk away from the pleasures of God, we're actually inviting his displeasure upon our lives. We might suppress this truth, beloved, but down in here somewhere, we know that these things are true. And so we seek to justify our ways. We seek to find confirmations that we're in the will of God and oh, the power of self-deception that lies within us. Oh, that we would test our ways by the word of God and by the presence of God and in the community of the people of God so that we would walk in his blessings and not come under his curse. As for Micah and the Levite, they proceeded in joy. 
They felt that they were under the blessing of God. But the author says in chapter 18, verse 1, a verse that probably should go at the end of chapter 17, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. And you can hear the refrain, everyone was just doing what they thought was right. And again, I just want to say it, this is the second time he's repeated it now, and he's trying to send a loud and clear message. I do not endorse what's happening in this story. God does not endorse what's happening in this story. This was a tragedy. This was the fruit of a people who had walked away from their leader. This was a fruit of people who had no leaders because the people were not following in the ways of the Lord. And now the private compromise of a mother and her son and their priest was about to go public and have widespread, historic, and disastrous consequences. While these two men thought that they had received confirmation from the blessing of the Lord upon their lives, the gangrene of their sin was about to spread and infect an entire tribe of Israel and an entire region of their land, and it was to last for many centuries to come. While all of this was transpiring, one of the tribes of Israel was also experiencing a bit of a crisis. You'll see this in chapter 18. Although the land had been promised to them for over a hundred years at this point, the tribe of Dan had still not come into their inheritance because they were living in compromise and they were devoid of power to do the things that God had called them to do. You'll see that the author says in chapter 18, verse 1, that no inheritance had fallen to the tribe of Dan, but what that means is that no cities had fallen before them because they never rose up and took the cities according to the will and the command of God. Don't think that Israel had been slow to give them land. The, the idea here is that Dan had been slow, like over a 100 years slow, to go and take the land that God had given to them. You can go on your own time to Joshua chapter 19. In Joshua 19, right in the middle there, you will see that the seventh allotment of land fell to the tribe of Dan, and they inherited the fertile lands. They inherited an amazing piece of property. Their inheritance was west of Jerusalem, from the bottom of those foothills, all the way to the shore of the great Mediterranean Sea. And in between those hills and that sea was an incredibly fertile land. It's the kind of place where if you throw a coconut, a coconut tree will grow up. It doesn't take talent to farm there. It's fertile. It's fruitful. It's fabulous. God had given it to them as a gift. This was the word of the Lord to the tribe of Dan. But they were living in compromise, and so they were devoid of power. They were committing adultery against God and worshiping the idols of the peoples of the land and therefore they could not dispossess the peoples of that land. God had told them exactly how to do what he had called them to do and he never said that they had to do it in their own strength. All they had to do was surrender and sit back and watch him do crazy stuff. But they loved their compromise more than their God and now they quote unquote could not inherit their land. I believe that if they had even repented here in these days of the judges, the Lord would have been gracious to them and given them everything they needed to inherit that land from the Philistines. But instead, they continued in their rebellious ways and they concocted a harebrained idea that they thought was the will of God. And this way sounded so spiritual. It sounded so biblical. It sounded so much like Moses and the faithful men who followed him in those days. It sounded so much like the Bible stories of old. And if it sounds like the word of God, it must be the will of God, right? Their plan was to send some people, five 
guys in particular to go spy out the land and see if there's somewhere that they can inherit. Does this sound familiar? Let's send spies into the land. Let's go see the land. Let's go see what God might give over to us. Let's send some spies. That's what Moses did. Then let's do that too. And these men set out and just happened to lodge for the night at the lovely and lavish estate of one Micah of Ephraim. And once they were there, they probably recognized the accent of this Levitical priest. He wasn't from that area, so they probably could hear his accent. They knew he was a Levite. How they did that is just part of the instinct. When I was in India, I was blown away by how Indians could look at a crowd of Indians and say, that guy's from this tribe, that guy's from that tribe, this guy's from that tribe. How they know, I don't know. But these people knew that the Levite was a Levite, and so they ask him, what are you doing here, and who are you, and what's your life about? He tells them his story, and so they think to themselves, wow, check this out. What a confirmation from God. Listen, young man, will you please do us a favor? Will you go into God and ask him about our journey and find out if we're going to succeed or not? We think we're in the will of God. We're, we're on this journey sent by our, the fathers of our tribe. We think that we're in God's will, but we need confirmation. Will you please go seek the will of the Lord and find out for us? I hope you can see, beloved, that this was an insane request. And their insanity was brought on by persistent and protracted compromise. They did not need to inquire about the will of God because the will of God was already clearly preserved inside the word of God. A lot had fallen to Dan, and the lot was exceedingly pleasant. It lay between the hills of Jerusalem and the shore of the great sea. God had already spoken, but they were in sin, and so they were looking for a confirmation of their compromise, and they got it. The Levite was also living in sin, and he sought the will of the Lord within that den of idolatry. And he came back with this answer. He said, go in peace, tribe of Dan. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. And notice in verse 6 there that the word Lord again is in small caps. It's the, it's the name Yahweh. He's sanctifying their idolatry, beloved. He's sanctifying their rebellion. The priest is telling them that the great I am is endorsing their journey when in fact he forbid their journey. The people of God are commanded to live within the boundaries set for them by God because in those boundaries there's a fullness of joy. I think God knows what he's doing, don't you? And when he says, live your life in this way, he knows what he's talking about. He knows that the greatest joy will be found there in this place, but it wasn't good enough for them, so they're looking for something else. And now they found so-called confirmation that they were within the will of God. This was a sad, sad story, beloved. The spies set out, and they ended up traveling 100 miles to the north, which might not sound like very far to us, but remember that they were walking on foot. They had camels, they had donkeys, they had supplies. This was a very long journey. They finally get up to the north part of the land, and they think they've found a place that God has provided for them. But in fact, the land is so far north that when you look at where they were and then look back at the boundaries God had prescribed for the promised land, the land that they found is actually outside of the boundaries that God had originally prescribed and said, I will give you this land. They went outside the boundaries of God because they were outside of the will of God, beloved. Never mind that. 
They journeyed back to their people and reported with joy that the land was good and spacious and that they should go and take it. And I could imagine that they were happy in their hearts thinking that they were more like Joshua and Caleb and being filled with faith and courage rather than being like those spineless and fearful men who told Moses that they could not take the land. They thought they were doing the will of God because it sounded so much like the word of God, but in fact, they were in rebellion. So they gathered their troops and they set out on their long journey north, but first they stopped again at Micah's place. And this time they brought a strong force and they made this young priest an offer that he couldn't refuse. And after he heard it, he actually didn't want to refuse it. Instead of just being the private priest of one man and his family, he could now come and be the priest of an entire people of God. And so this young priest left Micah without a word And the people of Dan stole Micah's so-called gods and idols and they set off to conquer this man-made promised land that they had found for themselves. When Micah discovered what had happened, he obviously wasn't very happy about this. He was a rich man, a powerful man, so he gathered his troops. He sets off after the tribe of Dan and he confronts them, but they're strong people and so they threaten him, they overpower him, and Micah is forced to return to to his home. Dan kept their newfound priest, and they surely took it as confirmation of the blessing of God, and off they went on their journey to complete their mission. When they arrived at that northern city, they took it quickly and decisively, and they changed its name from Laish to Dan after the father of their tribe, and they surely rejoiced in what they took to be the blessing of God. I can imagine, the Bible doesn't say this, but I imagine they threw a great festival, had a great feast, and celebrated what they figured God had finally given to them after waiting for more than 100 years to inherit some land. And so it says in verses 30 through 31, if you'll look there with me, chapter 18, verses 30 through 31. And the people of Dan, an entire tribe of Israel, set up the carved image for themselves. For whom? For themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land, which is to say for hundreds of years. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. And Shiloh was that place where when Israel first came into the promised land, Joshua set up the tabernacle in this place called Shiloh. And the tabernacle stayed there until David had conquered and established Israel as the capital of Israel. So Shiloh was kind of the worship center of Israel at this time. And as long as the tabernacle was there, and and actually even a little bit beyond The shrine to false gods was there up in the city of Dan. Beloved, the adulterous compromise of one woman spread to her son. Then it spread to her entire household and all who were related thereto. Then it spread to a Levitical priest who from birth had been ordained by God to serve him and all of his people to the glory of God and the joy of his own soul. Then it spread to an entire tribe of Israel who was also in sin and who ate up this compromised mishmash of sanctified blasphemy like it was going out of style. And from there, it was established as the enduring religion of the people of the north. It became an infecting disease to everyone who came near it until the days when the great Assyrian army attacked and destroyed the northern tribes in 723 and 722 B.C. Beloved, this was a tragedy. And by the way, when we were reading those last couple verses, did you notice who this priest was? It's, it's shocking, really. These are 
moments where you have to slow down and read the Bible carefully. Look there in verse 30. The author of Judges tells us that this guy's name was Jonathan. Finally, at the end of the story, we hear his name. He was the son of a man named Gershom, who just happened to be the son of some guy, maybe you've heard of him, named Moses, who just happened to be the guy that delivered Israel out of the hands of Egypt. This compromising priest was Moses' grandson, beloved. His grandfather lived in the presence of God and related to God face to face with such intimacy that at the day of his death, the Bible says, no one ever spoke with God like this again. Moses had such deep and profound communion with God that God was pleased to reveal to him his word and through him his word so that this man wrote the first five books of the Bible. What God did in his life is enshrined in the word of God forever. And beloved, this was this young priest's grandfather. Moses, no doubt, held and hugged and kissed and taught this young guy when he was a a baby and then a boy. His father, Gershom, no doubt taught him to walk in the will and ways of the Lord, and yet somewhere along this, the way, he lost his way. Somewhere along the way, he put aside the word of God and walked away from the will of God. And even worse than that, he led other people to think that they were justified in doing the same thing, and he did it in the name of God. He did it with the covering of a Levitical priest over him. He did it with the reputation that he is the grandson of Moses. Do you understand now? Micah's like, not only, hey man, I have a Levite. He's like, I have the grandson of Moses serving me. And then Dan thought the same thing. Wow, what a blessing from God. All the while, God was greatly displeased. This man conspired in establishing and prospering the worship of idols in the name of the Lord. He conspired in establishing and prospering sanctified blasphemy, and this sad legacy marked the tribe of Dan until the day they were deported from the land. Oh, I pray to God that we'll have ears to hear the seriousness of compromise today. The moral of the story, I think, is that when Israel turned away from the, wor- the word of the Lord, they walked away from the will of the Lord. The way they got into this mess is they stopped paying attention to the gracious words of their father. If they had only listened to God, they would have been blessed. But they decided to stop listening and now they were cursed. God had been clear. God had been gracious. God had been kind. God had been patient. God had been incredibly slow to anger. God had given them one chance after another, after another, after another, and yet they would not turn and listen and enter into his joy. They were stubborn and set in their ways. And so they blazed their own path in the name of God, and they searched for and found confirmations that they were in the will of God. And in this way, beloved, they marched right into their own destruction. Their destruction took a long time to come, but the path for it was already paved in these days. And I see in this a parable for our own country. We think we're so prosperous, but I guarantee you we are on a path to certain destruction because we have walked away from the word of the Lord and the will of the Lord and the ways of the Lord, and oh, that we would have ears to hear and turn back. John Calvin once wrote this. He said, when we depart from the word of God, we are bound to give ourselves to idols. There's really no other choice. You turn away from the word of God, you will give yourself to idols. When we depart from the light, we are bound to give ourselves to darkness. When we depart from the truth, we are bound to give ourselves 
to lies. So, a few examples. A man tells himself that he loves Jesus, but he doesn't need the church, no matter what Jesus has said about it. He's spiritual, but he's not religious, you see. And he finds all kinds of confirmation from God to justify his rebellion against the clear and gracious commands of God to come into the community of God and grow up there in Christ. Or a family sets up their own form of Christianity, and maybe even they they make part of that occasional visits to a church or even weekly visits to a church. But the truth is that they never connect or commune with the people of God there according to the will of God because they've set up their own version of Christianity, thank you very much, and they've sanctified it by plastering Jesus' name and Bible verses all over the place, and they think that they're in the will of God when in fact they're in rebellion against the will of God. Or let's say a group of families walks away from the churches, all the churches in their area, to create what they call a home church. Now there are some home church movements that are sanctioned by the Lord and blessed by the Lord and they're prospering in this land. I met Bill Bright right near the end of his life and his vision, I mean this guy had less than a year to live and you know what he was dreaming about? He was trying to raise billions of dollars to fund the, the starting of 15 million house churches around the world. Like praise God. I'm not against house churches, but I'm talking about something here that I see fairly often in our land, and that's where a group of families is essentially upset because they can't get what they want, so they're just going to break away from what God has ordained and create their own thing and call it a church and call it Christian, and they're going to ordain their own leaders and make their own rites and rituals and do things their own way. Thank you very much. We're in the will of God, but it's sanctified blasphemy, beloved. Or, you've seen this many times, this is the danger that is in my face every single day. A pastor or a church or sometimes an entire denomination can become drunk with a passion for numerical growth. And so they slowly creep away from the will of God and they slowly adopt the the tendencies of the world to do anything they have to do to get the numbers up, right? We need more nickels, we need more noses, and we need them now. I want to grow my church big and I want to grow it fast and I want to sell books and have a website and be famous. I want to exalt myself in the name of the Lord. And it's blasphemy, beloved. It's happening everywhere. I'm simply trying to illustrate in a few ways a tendency that exists within all of our hearts and I invite you to think of more examples of how we create a Christianity of our own making and then plaster Jesus' name over it and then find, hey, check it out, confirmations from God that I'm walking in the right way but all the while we're, we're ignoring the word of God and walking away from the will of God. We're justifying our compromise And I pray for all of us, as I've been praying for my own heart all week long, that we would be courageous enough and willing enough to let the word of God expose our hearts. As I said in my opening prayer, beloved, God is not unwilling to rip open our hearts and show us what's really there, but the reason he does that is to forgive and transform, right? So Satan will smack you in the nose with the truth in order to condemn you. Jesus will confront you with the the truth in order to bless you. And that's what's happening here today. Jesus is saying, beloved, open your hearts and minds to my word. I have given it for your instruction. Let me reveal your idols and let me invite you away from your compromise. That's what the Lord wants for us. Lasting joy, beloved. The truth is that the idols we choose are like they're sweet in our mouth, but it's bitter in the stomach, right? It tastes so good, it feels so good, it seems so good, but it comes back to bite us. And sometimes the Lord is just the opposite. Like in the beginning, it's a little bitter, 
It's a little hard, it's a little difficult, but in the end, tremendous joy that lasts and lasts and lasts and that the world cannot take away. I want to be very clear about something as I close here. I want to say to you that the Lord was not playing hide and seek with the people of Israel. He was not playing hard to get. He had been very clear with them, beloved. He told them what he wanted in his word, and it was not hard to understand. It was not hard to follow. Jesus said it's all summed up in two things. Love God with all you've got, and then love people as an overflow. That's it. If you'll do that, you'll fulfill the whole, the whole law of God. 633 commandments, all fulfilled. Simple, simple, simple. But they walked away from his word. And the Lord, the same is true of us, beloved. He's not playing hide and go seek with us. He has made his will very clear. And so what we need to do is seek the presence of the Lord by the word of the Lord in the context of Christian community. That's how we protect our hearts from committing sanctified idolatry. That's how we protect our lives from from constructing a Christianity of our own making and justifying it by plastering Jesus' name over the top of it. We simply meditate on the word of God in the presence of God, in the context of Christian community. And beloved, God is so gracious. He will lead us in the way that we should go. We have nothing to fear. All we have to do is turn. You don't have to be worrying at every moment. Holy smokes, am I committing idolatry? You probably are. And I probably am, but God will help us. The more I read the word of God, I say, whoa, I got an idol here. Let's do something about it. When the word of God is really small in our lives, idols become really big. It has to be that way. When the word of God becomes very big in our eyes, our our idols become visible and God helps us to deal with them. That's what he wants today. Turn to my word. Look at my will. I will reveal your idols. I will help you overcome. And I will lead you in Christ into an everlasting joy. You have a king. You have a priest. His name is Jesus. And he's here to show you the way. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the great I am. So come to him. Turn to him. Surrender to him. Forsake your idols. They are not satisfying. Give yourselves to Jesus. He will bless your lives. Let's pray now. Ask the Lord to help us with this. Father, I am so moved in my own personal life by the power of your word for this week. And yet I feel somewhat overwhelmed by the power of the idols that are still in my life and in my heart, the compromises that are still there, and that if I'm being really honest, that I like but I know that you reveal our hearts to change our hearts and I pray that you would come now and give us the power to do what you have called us to do. Father, I know that we do not have to do this in our own strength. If we will simply turn to you and look you in the face, you will give us all the desire and power we need to follow in your ways. I know that, so please help us, Lord, to just make that simple turn toward the face of Jesus. Help us. I love you so much because our hope is in this. Because God is faithful, your covenant is unbreakable. Lord, this thing is dependent upon you and on what you've done in Christ. So I just want to publicly thank you that our hope lies in your faithfulness. Please be near to us now, Father, as we rise to sing to you in Jesus' name. Amen.